Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Shana Abramson, to the memory of her grandmothers, Leah Bat-Bloomer and Sarah Esther Bat-Miriam. Hi. First of all, I'd like to thank Jofa UK for organizing this project. I'm very excited to participate. My name is Shana Abramson. I live in Jerusalem and I love studying Mishnah because I believe it gives us a unique glimpse into the rabbinic mindset during one of the foundational periods of Jewish law. The Mishnah is divided into six orders, which are subdivided into tractates. I study the Tractate of Zabim, which is part of the order of Taharot. This order focuses on different types of ritual impurity. In the times of the temple in Jerusalem, one could only enter the temple in a state of ritual purity. So knowing the laws about what makes a person ritually impure was very important. Today, these laws can seem less relevant. But to me, part of the challenge of Judaism is taking texts that, at first glance, don't always seem suited to our lives and mining them for meaning. The word Zavim, the title of the tractate, is the Hebrew plural of the word Zav. What is a Zav? Azav is a man who has been rendered ritually impure by abnormal genital discharge. Semen does not qualify as a secretion that could render a man azav, because ejaculating semen is part of the normal function of male anatomy. The category of zav comes from the Torah. In Vayikra chapter 15, verse 2, it says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any man has an unusual bodily discharge, such a discharge is unclean. The Torah then goes on to enumerate the ways that a Zav may spread his ritual impurity, both to certain types of surfaces he comes into contact with and to people. It also prescribes the method by which the Zav becomes ritually pure again. After the discharge stops, he must count seven discharge-free days and then immerse himself in living waters, after which he must bring two sacrifices to the temple, a sin offering and a burnt offering. The Tractate of Zavim is divided into five chapters, which deal with the following topics. Chapters 1 to 2. What constitutes Zav? Who can become a Zav? And how does one become a Zav? Chapters 3 to 5. What are the different ways in which a Zav can transmit ritual impurity to people and objects he comes into contact with? This leads into a general discussion of the transmission of impurity. Today, I want to study with you the second Mishnah of the second chapter. The Mishnah works off of the assumption that a man must see three signs of abnormal genital discharge within three days of each other in order to become a Zav. The Mishnah at hand deals with cases when a sign of secretion might not count as one of the three signs that makes a man a Zav. The Mishnah says, There are seven ways a Zav is examined for the cause of his discharge, providing he has not entered the bounds of Ziva, i.e. it is not already established that he is a Zav. With these lines, the Mishnah introduces the topic of determining potential causes for genital discharge and stipulates that such a determination is only made in the case of a man who has not already been declared a Zav. It now goes on to enumerate the seven potential causes. Through food, through drink, through a load he may have carried, by a jump he may have made, through sickness, through an improper sight or impure thoughts, whether he had impure thoughts before seeing something sexually arousing 
or whether he saw something sexually arousing and then had impure thoughts. The Mishnah has just listed seven things that it believes may cause a man to ejaculate semen. Eating or drinking certain types of food and drink, carrying certain types of loads, or jumping in certain ways, being sick, seeing an item that sexually excites him, or having sexual thoughts. Since seminal ejaculation is considered part of normal male biology, it does not count as one of the three signs of abnormal genital discharge that a man would need to see in order to become a Zav. The Mishnah is saying that a genital emission after one of the seven causes listed above may be counted as a normal seminal emission and therefore does not count as a sign of potential Zav status. Now, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Akiva each add their own categories to the Mishnah's original list of seven things that may cause seminal ejaculation. Rabbi Yehuda says, even if he saw cattle, wild animals, or birds copulating with each other, or even if he saw the colored garments of a woman. Rabbi Akiva says, even if he ate any kind of food, whether bad or good, or he drank any kind of drink, the emission does not render him a zav. The rabbis bring an objection to Rabbi Akiva's opinion. They said to him, according to you, there will never be zavim. Rabbi Akiva's categorization of what causes seminal emissions is so broad that if we follow his opinion, nobody will count as a Zav anymore. Anytime a man sees genital discharge, he'll be able to say that it's actually semen that was caused by one of the things on Rabbi Akiva's list, and therefore it doesn't count as one of the three signs that one must see in order to become a Zav. He, Rabbi Akiva, responded to them, the responsibility of the existence of Zavim is not upon you. In other words, it's not the rabbi's responsibility to ensure that men continue to become Zav. Rabbi Akiva is making an astonishing statement. Who cares if nobody becomes a Zav ever again? I believe that in doing so, he is reflecting a different way of thinking about physical symptoms that cause ritual impurity. The rabbi sees Zav as normative. They believe that the Torah created a category of Zav because it's a category that should exist in this world. God wants a universe in which sometimes some men are walking around with Zav status. The minute we say that Zav is a category that enriches the world in some way, we can begin the journey to find different symbolic and spiritual meanings in it. This model can be empowering. Instead of seeing physical symptoms that cause ritual impurity as something negative, during times of ritual impurity, we can see ourselves as fulfilling a positive aspect of the world's spiritual biology. And, since the Torah doesn't elaborate on the meaning of ritual impurity, it's up to us to shape the meaning, which puts us in control of how we experience it. Rabbi Akiva sees Zav as prescriptive. Sometimes, men have certain types of physical discharge. If they do, it makes them Zav. It's not that God actively wants there to be people who are Zav, but rather that man's biological nature means sometimes he may experience an abnormal genital discharge that happens to make him ritually impure. This impurity is a byproduct of human corporeality, and as such, is neither inherently good nor inherently bad. Because the Zav status precludes men from going to the temple and is inconvenient, it's better to limit it. But since it has no inherent value, other than as a marker of certain biological states that happen to prevent a man from carrying out certain tasks, 
there's no reason to make an active effort to ensure that there are cases when men are declared Zav. This framework can also be empowering because it demythologizes Zav and places it back in the realm of physical biology. In doing so, it takes away the pressure to find spiritual meaning in halachot that might feel both physically and emotionally unpleasant. The Mishnah, however, does not get into a discussion of the meaning of ritual impurity. After Rabbi Akiva's retort to his colleagues, it immediately goes back to the parameters of when an examination to determine the cause of genital discharge may be administered. Once a man has entered the bounds of Zav status, we no longer examine him. Discharges resulting from an accident or a doubtful discharge and seminal emissions are considered unclean because there is an established likelihood of impurity. The Mishnah explains that once a man has become a Zav, you can no longer use the seven loopholes listed above in order to categorize his genital discharge as pure. His genital discharge is now presumed to be impure until proven otherwise, and therefore counts as a sign of Zav status, even in cases where it might not otherwise. The Mishnah continues. When he sees the first discharge, he is examined for the seven things. When he sees the second discharge, he is examined for the seven things. When he sees the third discharge, we no longer examine him. Rabbi Eliezer says, even at the third incident, we examine him because of the need to know if he is obligated to bring a sacrifice. The Mishnah is explaining, when a man sees genital discharge that may be a first sign of Zav, the rabbis try to attribute his discharge to one of the seven causes listed above, thereby invalidating it as a sign of Zav status. A man goes through the same process if he sees a second potential sign of Zav. However, by the time he sees an abnormal genital discharge for the third time, the loopholes can no longer be applied. Rabbi Eliezer disagrees, saying that even if the loopholes can no longer be used to get the Zav out of having an impure status and having to immerse in living waters, they can be used to get him out of the obligation to bring sacrifices, which is part of the process of getting out of one's Zav status. I think we see two very important rabbinic principles emerging from this Mishnah. First of all, the Mishnah goes out of its way to create legal loopholes to prevent men with abnormal genital discharge from acquiring Zav status. Why? Being a Zav was unpleasant in three ways. One, it meant being unable to go to the temple. Two, it meant watching where you sat and how you interacted with family so as not to accidentally make them impure. Three, it meant the expense of bringing two sacrifices. The rabbis wanted to protect people. By finding loopholes to save men from being declared a Zav, they save them from being put in a situation that might negatively impact their relationships with family members, or that might be a financial burden. If we take attending the temple as a symbol of belonging to the Jewish community and public prayer today as a substitute for temple worship, then the rabbis were going out of their way to prevent men from feeling left out of the community and out of prayer services even for a period of time as short as a week. The rabbis were willing to be lenient on a matter of Torah law in order to ensure that members of the community felt at home in the temple, as well as to prevent them from coming to financial or emotional harm. I believe that the principle of protecting human beings from harm is also the guiding light in Rabbi Akiva's retort to the rabbis. When he tells them that it doesn't matter whether or not there are people walking around with the status of Zav in the future, 
He is telling them that it's not their job to police other people's fulfillment of commandments that are between an individual and God. In doing so, he sends us an important message about not judging other people's religiosity. Instead, Rabbi Akiva urges the rabbis to focus on fulfilling their obligations towards their fellow human beings by limiting the number of Zav cases through creative loopholes. Rabbi Akiva is famous for his maxim. The important rule of the Torah is to love your fellow as yourself. Our Mishnah shows Rabbi Akiva translating this maxim into Jewish law. He does not see his maxim as an abstract moral principle, but rather as a legal principle with practical applications in the real world. As human beings, one of the hardest things can be taking our abstract moral principles and applying them to our daily lives. This Mishnah provides an example of how it is possible to do so, even in realms that, at first glance, seem completely unrelated to the field of ethics. If there's one thing I want to leave you with today, it is the assertion that the Jewish law, as expressed in the Mishnah, is capable of creative loopholes geared towards protecting people from harm and encouraging respect for humanity. And that sometimes, even the texts that seem boring and irrelevant at first glance can teach us ethical truths that are relevant to us in the modern world. Thank you for listening. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.